If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of the letter to the Hebrews? Turn with me to chapter number 10. Slide your finger all the way down to verse number 19. We're going to look at our text, which is verses 19 through 25. And it reads as follows. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let us pray. Most gracious, kind, and loving Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for who you are and for what you do and for just being God. Besides you, there is none other. But more than that, Father, you have a special relationship with us because you're not just God by yourself. You're our Heavenly Father who sits high and looks low and is concerned about even the number of hairs on our head, is concerned about every beat of our heart and every breath that we take. So we pray, Father, as we spend a few minutes gathered around the table of your word, we would ask that you would dip us deep into the wells of wisdom, that we might bring forth things both old and new, that we might be encouraged to run on and see, as the old folks used to say, what the end is going to be. But also, Father, if there is a man, if there is a woman, if there is a boy, if there is a girl that knows you not in the free pardon of sin, that you will convict that you will save, that you will bring that person to you today. We ask your blessings for this, for preaching grace and listening mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. There were three friends who decided to go hunting. One was a lawyer, one was a doctor, and of course the other was a preacher. As they were walking along, they came up on a big buck, and they all shot at the same time heard one gun it sounded like because simultaneously they all fired at the same time and immediately the deer dropped to the ground and they all rushed up to see uh, how big it was and when they got there they were trying to figure out uh, something strange because although they had all fired there was only one bullet hole so they were discussing back and forth about who had shot the shot and who had actually killed the deer and you know who was going to get to claim the buck as the prize, and while they were arguing, the wildlife officer, he came by, and he said, to, he saw them arguing over this deer, and he came over and asked what the problem was, and they said, well, uh, you know, we all shot at the same time, but there's only one hole in the deer, and we're trying to figure out who the deer is going to belong to. Well, the wildlife officer goes over and looked at the deer, and he comes right back, and he says, oh, I can tell you, that's easy. They said, well, well who does it belong to? He said, well, belongs to the pastor. The pastor's the one who shot the deer. And they, the lawyer looked at uh, the doctor, and the doctor 
looked at the preacher, and then he looked at the wildlife officer, and they said, uh, well, how can you tell it was the pastor who shot the deer? He said, oh, that's easy, because the bullet went in one ear, not the other. As we think about the church in the 21st century, my question to us here at Cornerstone is, are we on point? Um, By that, are we doing what God wants us to do? Are we thinking the way God wants us to think? Are we living the way God wants us to live? Or is there a problem? There's always been problems in the church all down through the ages because people are people. My grandmother used to say, there's nothing funnier than people, and it takes all kinds to make a world. And we find that that's true even in the church. And the problem with the church is we are flawed, we are fickle, and we are faulty. And um, since we're talking about the church, and this is your church anniversary, I want to remind you, because I'm not necessarily going to tell you some things that you don't already know, but every now and then it's good to be reminded of who we are and what we are when we're talking about the church. I'm sure because your pastor is who he is, he's told you that the Greek word for the church used by Paul in his epistles is the word ekklesia. It's a compound word. The first part of the word is ek, which means out, and kaleo means is called. So the church is a called-out group of people. Paul took this word from the Greek language and general usage because any group that got together could be called an ecclesia, but he turned around and gave it special emphasis because he named it as describing the body of believers that were called out by Jesus Christ, the ecclesia. Um. But when you think about the church, I'm going to give you some definitions because these all describe exactly what the church is. And since this is a church anniversary, we're talking about reminding ourselves who we are. It's always good to remind ourselves exactly when we use this word what we're talking about. Now, there's five ways you can actually use this word, and one of them is the entire body of those who are savingly related to Christ. It could also be a particular Christian denomination. It could be the aggregate of all the ecclesiastical communions professing faith in Christ, the universal church. It could be a single organized Christian group, or it could simply be the building. I often talk to your pastor, and he tells me how his day is going. He says, I'm going to the church. So when he says he's going to the church, I know he's particularly talking about Randolph Street, and this building. So all of those things define us and describe who we are in Christ. Now, I am concerned because the reason why I'm here is to challenge you and remind you and to encourage you. So I I always like to do that for something that I am well known for doing. I have people at my church that tell me all the time when they meet people who have never met me, they said, now, you know, if you hang around him, he's going to ask questions. <laughs> he likes to ask questions. In fact, he asks a lot of questions. 
One person said, but he really does want to know the answer. He's not just asking just to be asking. He really does want to know when he asks you things because he is caring and he's concerned. So that my head doesn't get too big by that kind of acclimate, a friend of mine, I told her, I said, you know, well, sometimes I try and sometimes I'm very trying. And she said, well, it's good that you are aware of that. Because those of us who encounter you, we understand what both of those mean when it comes to dealing with you. Don't need to say anything, Brother Art. It's okay. But thinking about this whole idea of the church, um, who is this church that we're talking about? What is this church that we're talking about? You know, when we talk about what is the church, is it you and I when we are gathered here together on Sunday morning? or when we come in for a Bible study on Wednesday evening? Is it us as individuals anytime and anywhere when we are not here? Are we the church? I say yes. When we are here gathered collectively, we are the church. When we are wherever we are individually, yes, we are the church. One of the things that came out in your Sunday school class was talking about lifestyle and lip service. And the point was you have people that watch you and they watch me because of what we say we are. And what the world is looking for is to see, do those two things go together? Now, you can act all churchy all you want on Sunday. When my grandmother's alive and we were having one of our moments of disagreement, she said to me, you know, if Christianity doesn't work in the home, it doesn't work anywhere. And her point simply was this, you know, you can sit in church with your hair all combed and your perfume and your cologne on, looking good, smelling good, sounding good, talking good, acting good in church, and then go home and raise some hell with the people that you say you love the most. And for you and I to go home and live in a non-Christian way in a Christian home, she said, no, 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 if it doesn't work here, it doesn't work anywhere because it's supposed to be something we are all the time. In the dark, in the light, when we're seen, when we're not seen, are we who we say we are no matter where we are? So uh, the church is on point 24-7. When we leave here today at the end of this service and whatever we're going to do for the rest of the day before we go home, we don't stop being the church just because the Sunday morning service is over. I've seen it in several churches I've been into. It says, enter to worship, depart to serve. So when you think about this thing about the church and who we are and as we're representing and living for Christ, what is our method to accomplish being the church? What is our message that we have to share as the church? And what is our motive in everything that we do as the church? God knows our heart. We can fool everybody, sometimes even ourselves, but we can't fool God. And when we do things in church, why are we doing them? We had folks that came up and it was their moment to stand in the limelight. Sister Linda, you had the little trio, you had Brother David. You know, why are you all singing? Why are you all leading? Why are you all writing the history and sharing it with us? Because you, it's your moment, and you feel a little deflated, and you need some accolades and some admiration and, you know, some pats on the back. 
sometimes the problem is, is when our motive isn't right, it's like a balloon that you just blow up. And we, our head gets big. And we get full of ourselves. And we can't even get through the door because our head's so big. But if we're doing it because we're doing it unto the Lord, then our motive is right. And sometimes we, watching people do things, can't tell, but God is never fooled. My second question is, 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 is where is the church? If you are a study of the Bible, Old Testament, and I'm sure because of who your pastor is, you have a firm grasp of the Bible, both old and new. When God chose the nation of Israel, he had a plan. And his plan for the nation of Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. His plan was that the rest of the world would be the path to come and see what happens to a nation and a people who are totally, wholly committed to God. So in the Old Testament, people came to Israel to find out about God. In the New Testament, the church, we go completely in the opposite direction. And the reason why is because the Great Commission, which was given by Christ himself, said we are to go and make disciples. We are to go out into the world. The world, and it was mentioned by your pastor today in Sunday school, they're not coming in here. We have to go look for them because they're lost and they need to be found. So when we're talking about, you know, where is the church, what is is the church, wherever you and I are, the church is there. But when we're being the church, where do we get our power to perform as the church? What is the promise that we share to a dying world about the church? What is the presence that you and I have as salt and light in the world? We live in a fallen culture. And you see, the whole thing about this is we bring light to darkness, in it. But, but the reality is, as much as we do, and as much as people look at us, it's never about us, it's always about him, Jesus Christ. I was led to this chapter in Hebrews because we, we have some problems that those first century believers had in living for Christ. And the theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. The author, who is not identified, is writing to Jewish Christians who have been saved for a while, and they've been suffering persecution because they've been taking a stand for Christ. In our world today, the persecution that the church goes through sometimes is subtle, it is covert, sometimes it is overt and out in the open. You have no trouble understanding how the world feels about God and the church and Christians. It hasn't got to the point in this country where we literally fear for our lives and we gather in secret because to be discovered is to be killed, but that day may come. I have lived long enough in my lifetime that there are things that I've seen in my lifetime that I never, I repeat, that I never thought in this country would ever happen, but I've seen them happen. We have those who say that this country is not what it used to be and we should make it great again. We're only going to make this country great again as if we follow God. Because God is the one that allowed us to become who we are. But we have the same problem that you find in the Old Testament where when God has been good to his people, sometimes they don't remember to be good to God. And other things come along that pull them away from God and following God and loving God. 
But this church, back in the first century, they were suffering persecution because they were taking a stand for Christ. If I ask this question, how many people sitting here believe that the longer you are a Christian, the easier it gets? I dare say that that is not true because the challenges become greater the longer you and I live for the Lord. And sometimes the challenge isn't those who are on the outside, it's those who are on the inside. And sometimes it's not those who are around us, but it's me, myself, and I. And the problem that this church had in the first century was they had the danger of drifting away from God. They had a Jewish background. They had become Christians. But as they were facing that steadfast persecution, as they were suffering for God, they began to get a little weary. They began to get a little tired. They began to get a little discouraged. And the question is, is when we get that way in our service for God, what do we do? Our thought for today is simply this, holding fast. What are you and I holding on to, and who is holding on to us that allows us to keep on keeping on being the church of God, being a light in a world that is looking for darkness? So as we look at this book, I want to set this up for you because the danger was Well, you know what? This is too hard. I'm tired of being a Christian. I don't want to walk with the Lord anymore. I've told your pastor when he shared with me things, and what's happening here is not uncommon to most other churches. You find that people who were in the church were excited about the church, were here every time the church door was open. That fire seemingly is burning a little low. That enthusiasm is not running as hot. And sometimes they have even seemingly disappeared. You got folks in this church, you couldn't find them even if you had a search warrant. I always chuckle because, you know, your first time you started what I called the third heaven where you were upstairs above the gym and you were meeting there and then you, you went down to the storefront and transformed it and then you moved up a couple doors and God was good and you moved up to the third floor and then God was good again and then here you are in this building and as you progress through those 14 years it's been wonderful. Now there are folks who back in the day in them early days said they were members of Cornerstone Baptist Church and you, you, you haven't seen them. And, I, and so your pastor is all about commitment. And I find that a lot of people find that an awesome challenge because he says the way we were taught, the way we were raised, because it's biblical. Our pastor used to say, if, if I'm here, I expect you to be here. If I'm here on Wednesday on time, I expect you to be here Wednesday on time. If we're going to have church in the morning and we're going to go out and fellowship with somebody else, if I go, you go. And if we're going to come back and have Lord's Supper or training in the evening, if I'm here, you're here. But in the world in which we live today, people say, well, you know, that's a little constricting. I mean, that's, you know, do you really expect all that commitment that, you know, all the time, every time that if you're here, yes, yes. Why? Because we serve a God who gave everything he had for us in the person of his son, who gave his best for us and will always give us his best. Why would we want to think that it's okay not to be that way with God? 
When I was a kid, my parents belonged to a community church, and on the front of the bulletin was this saying, if every member of this church was just like me, what kind of church would this church be? So I say to you all, if you all are the examples of what the church is like because we're going to go on your model, how much consistency, commitment, passion, love, desire for the church would we have? Or we're just, you know, every now and then, when I feel like it, when something isn't more important and I got some time to give to God. You got some time to give to God? Really? My Bible tells me, I don't know who you think woke you up, my alarm clock, my watch, my wife, my mom, my... No, no, no. The Lord woke us all up. He gave us the presence of a right mind. He gave us strength that we could rise up out of the bed and we have a desire to come to his house. Because there was a day when there was no alarm clock and there was no... So who do you think woke you up? You know, we sang that song. I woke up this morning, what? With my mind stayed on Jesus. So my, my point is, is commitment. Yes, it's expected. Why? Because it's necessary. If you and I are the church and we are the testimony of what the church is like, then people watching are going to go, oh, so that's all being a church is. That's all Christianity is, is whenever I feel like it or I got time. And how do people get that way where there is drifting going on? How do they get to the point where their desire for God is not like it used to be? I used to tell your pastor, well, you know, I, what I think is kind of a funny joke is you got folks that you haven't seen in years and they don't even know what church is because you move four times. So if you send them a letter, they're like, well, who's this from? What address is this? I don't recognize this address. And if they showed up because you invited them, you know, they going back to the first or second building like, well, what the, there's no name on the door that says, I think it's kind of funny, but, you know, that's not funny. I go, well, I think it is because I said people have been away so long they don't even know what a church is. That's a sad indictment on them because they are we. So we are to go out and be a light into the world. And to prove that, the writer of Hebrews talking about the superiority of Christ, and he says, when you talk about Christ, what is he more superior than? Well, he's more superior in the Old Testament than the prophets. He is more superior to the angels. He's more superior to the paradigm prophet, Moses, and to his successor, Joshua. He is more superior in his priesthood than the Levitical system that was set up in the Old Testament. He had a high priestly ministry that was unlike anybody else's. So in every way, in all kinds of way, Jesus Christ is superior to anyone in anything that would cross his path. He is superior because he is who he is. He is God's only son. So he says all that, and he goes from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 10, verse 18, and he's explaining all these reasons why Christ is superior. And he's trying to let them know that there's all some dangers along the way that they need to be aware of. And you and I need to realize that if you and I are going to be tempted, it's always going to be in the same three areas. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You saw the pattern that first happened in the Garden of Eden, where the tree 
that was specifically put in the center of the garden to avoid confusion. Now, he didn't put it over in the northwest corner. He didn't put it over in the southeast corner. He didn't put it over in the, because, you know, people are like, well, where's the tree? Where's the tree? And I think he said it's over there. No, it's right in the middle. So nobody has to get lost. You just go to the middle. Meet me in the middle. Somebody a little saw my, meet me in the middle. So anyway, you, 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 that's where the tree is. So you get to the tree, and then and, and you're given instructions about the tree. It was a very naive time in people's lives, especially the first man and the first woman, because there's some stuff that they were told they really didn't understand. The day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely D-I-E, die. You're in paradise. You're in the Garden of Eden. This world knows nothing about death because death has never occurred. But the challenge was is, as a commitment to being who you are and who you say you are, are you going to do what I ask you to do? And that same commitment that was given in the garden is the same commitment that is given to us today. If we say we are who we say we are, we're we going to do what God wants us to do. It don't make any difference how you all think the church should be run. That's got nothing to do with it. What has God said how the church is to be run? And our big moment is to submit, to line up, and to follow. And you wonder why people don't want to work with you. Well, they don't want to work with you because you don't want to work with nobody else. You know, you always mumbling and grumbling when they ask you, don't put me in here. Really? You know, sometimes you just tell people, go home, but I want to help. No, no, that's, that's not the kind of help we need. Uh, you're more of a hindrance than a help. So go home. And when you go home, pray about your attitude. What's wrong with my attitude? It needs fixing. So he's challenging them because he says, there are dangers that you need to be aware of. In chapter 2, he says there is the danger of neglect. One of the things that causes drifting in the church is when people become neglectful. What are they neglectful of? They're neglectful of their time with God. In October 2017, your private time with God, when you met with the Lord on whatever basis that you met with him on, fast forward to October 2018, are you the same? Are you still spending time with God? Have a desire to spend time in God's word to let God speak to you and you speak to God? Is your prayer life better than it was last year or has there been some drifting? Well, you know, I got stuff to do when I got up out of bed. I don't have time to get down on my knees if that's what I do. Some people got to do it in the bed because they know if they get down on their knees, they ain't going to get back up because age and time has come by and they're like, mm, mm, mm. You can tell your age by the noises you make when you stand up and you sit down. You know, when you sit down, you go, uh. And when you stand up, you go, uh. So it's, uh, uh, uh. Now, some of you all who are, you know, 35 and under are like, what are you talking about? You just, you just live a little longer. You'll understand. But where are we in, in our alone time with God and our prayer time and our commitment? Do we still have the same passion for God that we had in 2017 when we stood up and waved our hands in the air and act like we really do care? Now we can't even stand, don't even wave our hands because we really don't care. So has there been some drifting? And the thing is, is that it generally happens gradually. It's not something that all of a sudden, you know, the perfect storm comes along and we end up way out in the middle of nowhere and we wonder how we got here. No, if we're drifting away from God, it generally happens gradually. That's why the commitment is necessary. That's why the fellowship is important. That's why the continuity is there. Your pastor said, 
you know, in this last year, I've had ups, I've had downs, I haven't always been what I should be. He speaks for the rest of us because we've all had our moments. We've had our storms, which we learn come strikingly, suddenly, and severely in our lives. And the question is, is when the anchor is pulled, does, does the anchor hold? And if we know Jesus Christ, we know that no matter what happens in the storms of life, the anchor will hold. You do realize that in the world in which we live today, we are counterculture. And I say that because there are things that the Bible stands for that our culture condemns. There are things that the culture believes that goes against the Word of God. The danger for those first century believers is that they were going to drift away from Christ and just take the easy way out, the path of least resistance. And that would simply be to drift on back to their Judaism and their Jewish roots and just start doing that Old Testament stuff. And, you know, because if I, if I blend in with those who are not with Christ, then I don't have to face opposition. I don't have to face suffering. I have to remind you all, the Bible says all that are godly in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution, which means you and I, it goes with the territory. We are the salmon swimming upstream in a world that is flowing downstream, and we stick out like the proverbial sore thumb. Now, the problem with that is, is we don't want to stick out like sore thumbs. We want to kind of meld and mold and blend and just kind of go with the flow. But that's not what God has called us to be. He's called us to be salt and light in a world that needs to be preserved and a world that needs to be exposed and a world that needs to be shown that they're wrong and then shown the way to go. We've got the answer to which the world is looking for. The question is, have we spent so much time with the world? We're not even thinking that way anymore. We're just drifting away from God because it's easier to drift. When I worked at Rocky Fork, we had some metal docks that we were replacing with wood docks, and we tied them up to the, the wall. And my boss told me one day, he said, uh, some of the docks have broke loose. You need to go out and pull them back in and tie them back to the wall. I said, okay. So I get out there in the patrol boat. It's me, myself, and I. And, and I come over to the first dock, and it was drifting out in the lake, and I got out of the boat and went over to the dock, and I'm inspecting it. And then I noticed something very strange. There was one important thing that I had forgotten to do when I got out of my boat to get onto this floating dock. And that was I needed to tie the boat to the dock. Because <laughs> when I turned around, my boat was drifting away. And it wasn't like a lean and grab. It was like, oh, my. So I'm standing out on this floating dock, and there's boaters going by in their bass boats, and I'm standing there waving my hands, and they're waving as they go by. <laughs> and I said, this isn't good. So I had to take off my shoes and my socks and my gun belt, and I eased into the water, and I was able to get back over to the boat and tie it up, drifting. It's not something you're expecting to happen, but when you're not paying attention, it can happen. So he said not only were they guilty of neglect, which was leading to drifting, he said the other thing that was leading to the, the drifting is found in chapter 3 to chapter 4, and it's unbelief. 
Do you all still have faith? Are you still a community of faith? Are you still individuals that say, forsaking all, I trust him? Are you still people that believe that we serve a God who can do anything but fail and lie? Or because some stuff that's happened that made you question, some stuff that's happened that made you kind of get a little doubtful, you're kind of wondering. Because for a Christian, faith and doubt cannot exist in the same person. Either we have faith to believe that God is who he said he is and can do what he says he can do, or we don't. The example is given the nation of Israel. They got all excited because they were delivered from 400 years of slavery, and they're going to the promised land. They're going to the promised land. You know, they were singing, I'm on my way to that land bright and fair. You know, they're all excited, and they're marching, marching, marching. We serve a God who doesn't like to surprise us. We serve a God that likes to prepare us for what's going on. He's told us, even from the beginning, don't eat the tree, you're going to die. So it's always like, what's going to happen with the tree? We already know what's going to happen. You're going to die. And God, that's the way he's been. He always tells us what's going to happen, good or bad, before it happens. The choice is up to you and I and our commitment to being who we're supposed to be because of what we're supposed to be. Nation of Israel, they're all excited. They say, well, we need to go find out what's over there. So send out the 12. They send out the 12. They come back. And, you know, people talking about, you go with the crowd, go with the crowd. The 10 in the crowd out of the 12 said, oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a good land. Lots of people over there, big people over there. I mean, the giants over there. And we're grasshoppers, not only in our side, but in their side. I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't think this is such a good idea. You weren't sent over there to find out if it was a good idea. You went over to see what God was going to give you. Well, everybody said, well, let's take a vote. We're going with the 10. We're going with the 10. We're not where we were on our way. Well, not so much. Not so much. Eh, Let's just step back. Step back and assess the situation. God gave us brains. We should use them. You know, think about a strategy, what's against us. Nah, not a good idea. So Moses says, okay, I tell you what. We're going to have a meeting tomorrow morning. Everybody be here. They all show up. He says, okay, you all have made some decisions. Let me tell you what God has said. Okay, okay. Uh, How many of you in this crowd are age 20 and above? Raise your hand. Wave them in the air. And they're all, yeah, that's us, that's He said, you all stand over here. Now, everybody else, it's, under 20, you all stand over here. So they divided, and he says, I got some good news and some bad news. Okay, okay, good news, what's the good news? He says, the good news is you didn't want to go into the land, you don't have to go into the land. And the bad news, the bad news is you're going to die. What? You're going to die. You're going to wander around out here in the desert for 40 years because you did not believe God. One of the things that can cause drifting is unbelief. Our lives are not our own. Our lives belong to God. He did not always promise us smooth sailing, sunny days, a life of ease, comfort, and pleasure. Don't get the idea that because you've come to Christ, because I've come to Christ, that all my worries are over. All my problems are gone. All my plights are behind me. All my perils I don't have to deal with because I'm with God and God is with me. You know, I watch them on TV and they said, 
Grab it and blab it, name it and claim it, mark it and park it. God is a God of prosperity. We're meant to be the head, not the tail, and we should not be doing without. We should not be suffering. We should not be sick. And you go, where did you get that? When you look at the life of Christ, that is not true. And if it's not true about Christ, why would you and I think it's going to be true about us? The reason why we're called called Christians is because we are followers of Christ. And Jesus said this, take up your cross daily and follow me. And whatever they do to me, they're going to do to you. So do not walk out of here thinking that the Christian life is an easy life. Actually, the Christian life is a challenging life. The Christian life is not for sissies. The Christian life is not for weaklings who try to do it on our own and in our own strength because the life that we live is from the inside out because of what God is able to do in our lives. But if we don't believe God, isn't that he can do for us? Because he's a God that operates on faith. So we don't have no faith. Don't expect God to do anything. You wonder why stuff isn't happening because we don't have faith. The other thing that he says causes drifting is lack of maturity. When you get to chapter 5, verse 11, down to the 20th, verse of chapter 6, one of the things he says, he says, you know, how long have you been in the church, sister? Oh, I've been in the church 20 years, brother. Well, you should be able to have a ministry, a ministry, you know, help some of the younger sisters out, help some of the sisters with their children, give some advice about what it takes to be a good wife, what it takes to be a good mother, how to serve the Lord. What about you, brother? Can we count on you to, to, to be in charge of me? How long you been in church? Well, I've been in church 15 years, Pastor. Growing every day, growing every day, learning more about the Lord. Well, if you got all that growing and know about the Lord, could you help us out with a Sunday school class? Or could you help us out with some Wednesday night stuff? Me? Want me to do something? Yeah, you said you've been in the church. In fact, weren't you one of the ones that they had up here last year that was talking about how I love my church? And, and, and Cornerstone's been so good to me, and it changed my life and set me free. And, and Pastor and Sister McGee, you've been such an inspiration to me, and, and I love you. And I love you, sister, and I love all you all, and God is good. You all know where I came from, and look where the Lord has brought me to. God is good. Wasn't that you? Well, yeah, that was me. For all this growth and maturity and blessing that God has given you, we got some jobs for you to you want me? To? Yes, I want you to do it. Well, you know, I, I look at the church and there's some things we need to do around here. Oh, you got a vision, brother? We know we need to do something with the children. We need to do something with our sound ministry. We need to do something with, you know, getting on uh, social media and all that. I mean, pastor, the, the fields are white for harvest. All we need to do is get out there and get with it. Right on, brother. Right on, sister. I see you got the vision. You, you get that started. You need anything. You let me know. Do you, what, you want me to be there? Well, you know, you get to start, I'll help. Brother, sister, it all starts with one person who's committed, who has the vision, who's inspired by God, empowered by God to be what God wants him to be and do great things for God. But you you get it started and I'll I'll jump in, really. So you're going to be the proverbial bump on the log every Sunday when you decide to come. Well, what are they doing down there? I need to go in and check in. Maybe they got something going on. Maybe I should come back and see, you know. Eh, unless there's other stuff going on because, you know, it is Sunday. I'll tell you how this works. Today, I have a cousin whose birthday was the 4th of October. She's 10 years younger than I am. She turned 50. So today, in approximately 11 minutes, she's going to have a surprise party because she's 
allegedly just going out to eat with her husband at a restaurant, just a little dinner to celebrate her birthday. Well, all her family and friends have been saying, surprise! So my niece calls me up and says, well, I got an invitation for you. I said, you got an invitation? So when is it? What's on Sunday? Sunday when? Well, you know, the first Sunday in October. I said, really? And what time is this party? Well, it's going to happen at noon. So you're coming, right? I said, I'm coming? Really? It's Sunday. It's noon. Why are you having it at noon on Sunday? No, I've got commitments. I've got things to do. I know where I intend to be. But it's, but it's your cousin's birthday. It's a special. That's fine. That's fine. You got to make a choice. The world says, let's have a good time at noon and celebrate the fact that somebody is alive for 50 years. I say, let's celebrate that I'm going to be in God's house with God's people because this is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad therein. So when it comes to being who we should be, where we should be, where are we when we're supposed to be? They're looking out and going, where is? Have you seen? And you've got people avoiding you when you see them in the store. They see you coming, they go down the other aisle. If you're quick, you get to the other end of the aisle and meet them on the other side and go, oh, my brother, was you trying to get away from me? No, no, Doc, I, I wasn't trying to get away. There was a sale item down there, and I thought they were going to run out. I need to get down there, you know, and get the last one. Really? Yeah. Or, you know, see, people on the street used to wave and smile at you. They don't even look. They look away, but they don't. Wasn't that brother so-and-so? Yeah, yeah. What's his deal? Drifting, drifting. Lack of maturity, unbelief, neglect. We live in a counterculture. So in light of the fact that this is true, and I challenge you, you find folks that haven't been here a while that you may be related to, or you may be neighbors or friends with, may have known them for years, and they were once with us, but now they're no longer with us, and you're concerned about them, go ask them. What's going on? Find out if some of the reasons why they're drifting is because they're battling with sin, Satan himself. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That they're battling with the things that cause them to be pulled away from God and they're drifting because they're neglecting things that are important in their spiritual walk. Because they don't believe like they used to, the fact they have, they're guilty of unbelief, or because they seemingly don't have the maturity that they should have for as much time as they've known the Lord. Somebody told me, if you've been in the church for 50 years, you should be a giant. But we look around and we see pygmies. Little people, runts, like they didn't get no food, didn't grow, didn't become what God wanted to be. Why? Because they didn't grow up. Paul, the writer of this book, says, you know what? At the time, you all should be eating steak. Some of y'all, like babies in there, I need a bottle. You need a bottle? 50-year-old Christian drinking out of a bottle? What is the deal? Well, unless it's the other kind of, well, you know, Christian liberty, brother, Christian liberty. No. What is the answer? Uh, one of my favorite authors and preachers is Alistair Begg, and he has this quote. Because the question is, is what is it that separates us from God, whether we're in the church or outside the church? It's always the same thing. S-I-N, sin. The acrostic for sin is selfish in nature. Whenever you and I become selfish with what God has given us, whenever you and I become selfish with what God wants us to do, whenever you and I become selfish and focus on me, myself, and I instead of he who is able, we can find ourselves falling into sin. But how does God feel about our sin? How does Christ feel about our sin? I like this quote because Alistair says, our sins do not separate us from the love of Jesus. Jesus separates us from the love of our sins, together with its guilt and power in time. 
We've got to hold up the bloodstained banner. We've got to be faithful, and we've really got to be who God wants us to be. And if we really love the Lord, it will show not only by what we say, but also by what we do. Jesus said this, if you love me, keep my commandments. Parents who have children, how do you know that your children love you? The things that you taught them that were right and wrong, they don't just do it because you stand there looking at them. Okay, Dana, I'm going to watch you. Got my eye on you. Okay, as long as you're watching me, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. But don't turn away, because if you turn away, I'm going to go out and play. The point is, is we teach our children right from wrong, not only because it's the right thing to do, but that they will internalize it and they will live their lives knowing that it is right or that it is wrong and they will choose to act accordingly. The same thing with the Word of God. We internalize the Word of God. The Bible says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. We do not want to be guilty of being professors of the Word. And I mean not, not only somebody who can talk it, but somebody who thinks they know something. You know, the devil sometimes knows his Bible better than we do. Unfortunately, that's what happened in the garden. Add a little word, add a little not, shall not, not die. I think that's what it says. Isn't that what it says? Adam, I think he says, it's okay to eat the fruit because we're not going to die. No, not in what I heard God said. But my point is, Becoming who God wants us to be, doing what God wants us to do, is a challenge. But we are not without hope. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the shedding of his blood is spoken about in verses 19 and 20. In the old days, on the Holy of Holy, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and represent the nation of Israel, and he would go in and make an atonement for sin. First, he would cleanse his own self so he was worthy to go in, and then he would go behind the veil and he would go in and offer a blood sacrifice for the shedding of blood and the forgiveness of sins for the nation of Israel. And then they had a scapegoat, and they would supposedly transfer all the sins of the nation and put it on the goat, and the goat would wander out into the wilderness, carrying away their sins. Well, that was all symbolism because he did it year after year after year after year after year because it never actually did what it was supposed to do. Something more permanent had to happen, and that's why the writer of Hebrews says God's sacrifice, God's son, was the most permanent solution to the sin problem, and he was superior to all those lambs and goats and oxes and sheep that had been killed down through the years because that was a temporary solution. His was permanent. How do you know it was permanent? The Bible says it was permanent because he only did it once. We celebrate that when you have the season called Easter. The Bible says that they lifted him high and spread him wide and he hung his head in the lock of his shoulder and he died. And they pierced him in the side because they didn't know if he was really dead, but he was dead. He said, it is finished. And when he did that, he died for you and he died for me. And at that day, it says that in the temple, the veil was rent in two that kept man from the Holy of Holies, only gone in by the high priest. It was rent from the top to the bottom and it symbolized not another way, but the only way that you and I can come to God is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ now becomes our high priest, representing us to God. So how do we keep from drifting? Let us, let us, 
let us. All of these phrases are Greek words which are in the subjunctive mood. They're verbs, and they are in the first person, third, plural, which means it's not I, it's not you, we, let us. The writer is saying, I'm just as much in danger of drifting as you are. What do we do to keep from drifting? How do we hold fast to that which we have? First of all, we recognize what Christ has done. Can we ever get over the fact that he loved us so much that he died? Can we ever get over the fact that he loved us so much that he not only died for our sins, but that he rose again and got victory over the grave and over sin and over Satan? How often do you think about that, being a member of the church, no matter where you are? Do you only think about it when you show up on Wednesday night and you're talking about it? Do you only think about it when you come to church on Sunday morning for Sunday school or the morning worship? When else do you and I think about what God has done and how much it cost God to send his son to die for us on the sin? It should always be in our minds. It should always be in the front, in the back, somewhere. We should live our day every day because of who God is and what he has done, and we can never get over the fact I don't know who you think you are, but I know I'm not worthy. I know me. I know how I can be. I know how I am. And I know that I am drifting and I'm in danger of drifting. And it's the fact that you consistently come and hear this reminds us, reminds you and me of who we are and what we should be. So he says, how do we hold on how do we keep from drifting? He says, first of all, the subjunctive mood is, is a mood of it's, it's, it's hesitantly affirmative. It's like, you know, this could be if you and I would just do. It's not spoken with confidence like this is going to happen or this has already happened. It's like this is what we can be. This is what we should do if, if we do what God wants us to do. If we think the way God wants us to think, then we won't drift. If we do what God wants us to say, if we do what God wants us to do, we won't fail. So he says, let us draw near. It means to come close. It means that you were over there, and now you're coming in closer to get over here. It means to approach. And the Bible tells us that when it comes to God, we are his children. He is our father. We don't have to come afraid like a dog that's been beat. You know, come on, come on. You're like, dog. That's not the kind of God that we have. We have a God that loves us. He's our heavenly father. He always has our best interest at heart. He's going to do what's right for us, not sometimes, but all the time. And knowing all that, we're not full of ourselves like, well, Lord, I'm here. I'm here. No, we come in humility. But we're not fearful of God. We're reverential. We're respectful. But we draw near. When I look at you and I hear you talk, I do not know what is in your heart. But if I listen to you and watch you long enough, I will find out. But this writer says, let us draw near with a true heart, one that is sincere. And this heart that we have has full confidence and faith in God. So we're drawing near to God, believing that he is who he says he is, doing what he says he can do, and that he can do everything but fail in life. So we have confidence not in ourselves, but in God. But we also realize that if you remember that the day of the Last Supper, they all gathered in the upper room, and they're all looking at one another. Peter's looking at John, and 
John's looking at James, and, you know, they're going to have the last meal, and, uh, well, typically at these things, there's a servant, and the servant's job is, you know, it's been dusty out there on the roads because they weren't paved, so you had a little dust from the day on your feet, and so to refresh you and to make you clean and make you feel good, somebody would, would take this basin and this, this pitcher of water and a towel, and they would come along and ease your sandals off and wash your feet and then dry them all off. Now, I don't know how well you like your feet. I mean, some people don't even like their own feet. So, you know, if they don't like their own feet, like, you know, keep them in them shoes. Keep them, keep them, keep them in them shoes. Don't be letting them puppies fly. Man, boy, I, and then look at them. T- oh, pedicure, you need some help, some prayer, because... Brethren, some people, that's the way I feel about my feet. Oh, that's the way you feel about, well, yeah, you got a point there. It is a great act of humility to wash a stranger's foot or a loved one's foot. So Jesus didn't make a big deal. Now, look, I done told you all. He didn't say a word. He demonstrated by example. He got the pitcher. He got the bowl. He got the basin. He went around and he washed their feet and he dried them. What I have done for you, you are to do for one another. So let us draw near with a sincere heart. And the idea is, is having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's the idea that we have to continually keep ourselves clean. It's not the idea that, you know, we've been saved, we dropped into sin, now we need to come back and get saved all over again, and it didn't stick, and, you know, I need to try it again, and it didn't stick. No. The Bible says once saved, always saved. But, you know, living in the world, if you go out and play with the pigs in the pig pen, you're going to get dirty. So he says, when you get done with your day in the pig pen, come in and clean yourself up. So the idea of drawing near to God, approaching to God, because he's easy and wonderful to be near, is that being with God will help keep our hearts true. It'll keep our bodies and our minds clear and clean, and we can be who God wants us to be. We can prove that there is a reality in serving the true and living God. My question to you is, is as members of this church, of the universal church, do you actually believe that being a Christian makes a difference in the way you live your life? Do you actually believe that when you go through the same stuff, just Marianne talking about, I've been sick, Ben's been sick, people in the world, they get sick, just like you do, may have the same thing you got. But the thing is, is when you go through your sickness, whatever God decides he's going to do, if he brings you out, praise him. Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So whether I stay here or I go, I'm going home. I don't care. I've got it made in the shade no matter which way it goes. But my point is, is when you go through what you go through, are you going through it like the world or are you going through it like a believer in Christ? Sister Mary Ann said, I was at a low moment. I was despairing. But God loved me enough that he did not leave me alone. He sent people to come by and comfort me and encourage me. And I got a point to make about that. But he says, secondly, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Our commitment should be steadfast. It should be true. It should be consistent. So he's saying when we're talking about holding fast, it means to keep firm possession of. It means to keep secure. So what we say, our faith, let's hold it up like it means something. Let's use it like it's real. 
Forsaking all, I trust him. We should continually believe that we serve a God, because it says at the end of this verse, for he is faithful that promised. We have the promises of God, what he has said he will do for us, what he has done for us. And because of that, because you're not just a new Christian, you don't know anything about how God works. You've been working, walking with the Lord a little while. You know what God has done because God has been good into you in the past. All of a sudden, he's going to cut you off. The thing I find amazing about the Old Testament and the nation of Israel he did not pick them because they were mighty. He did not pick them because they were large. He did not pick them because they were exceptionally smart. He did not pick them for any reasons that the world would look at them and pick them. He picked them because they were the smallest nation in the world. And because they were small and considered insignificant, his point was, look what I can do in the life of a people who are committed to me. And he was faithful to them. The last thing, let us consider one another. To provoke to good works. Now, that word provoke can be used in a positive sense. It can be used in a negative sense. Some of us have apt skills in both directions. Some of us can really irritate people, and sometimes we can really make people happy, and it's the same person. You're like, why are you doing that? Which is why I say sometimes I try, and sometimes I'm very trying. Yes, we know. Your pastor, I know what a friend is because of him. Because he's known me. When I was a teenager, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, now we're moving on into the 60s. He's seen me up, he's seen me down, he's seen me happy, he's seen me sad, he's seen me whine, he's seen me complain. And in spite of all that, I'll give you a moment to compose yourself, sister, since you add an editorial. Mm! <laughs> he's still my friend. And the only reason why he's still my friend is because of the love of Christ that's in him. I used up his love years ago. You know how people are when they do what you like and be what you want them to be. You right there with them and you friendly and yeah, yeah, yeah. But when they start doing, say, yeah, yeah, I got to cut that off. got to cut that down. got to cut you off. Because our humanity shows up. But when we have the love of God in our hearts... Somebody said he looks beyond faults and sees needs. And when we're in the church, we should look beyond faults to see needs. The state of Ohio is this little thing going on for terrorism that says if you see something, say something. I say for the Christian church in the 21st century, if we see something going on in someone's life, do something. Reach out and touch. Reach out and pray. Reach out and call or text or Bring them something to eat or take them where they need to go. Let them know that they're not alone, that they're part of the body of Christ. Because who is the church? Where is the church? Why is the church? It's us. And for the people inside that need encouraging and for the world outside that is watching, we need to make a clear statement of who we are and why we hold on. So he says, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Those are the people that have drifted away. But if you see someone drifting away... Exhort them, encourage them, challenge them in love. Galatians says, if you see a brother or sister overtaken in a fault, don't be like, you know, send me, Pastor, I'll go take care of it. And we walk in with a judgmental attitude and a condescending tone in our voice, and we all puffed up because, no, I don't have that problem. But you do, Howard, and I'm here to help you deal with your problem. <laughs> this is an intervention. We're going to get you straightened out and straightened up and have you flying right. And when I get done here, you're going to be on where you should be. Do you understand, Howard? And I was like, who does this Negro think he is coming in telling me 
I can tell you stuff about, oh, this isn't about me, Howard. This is about you. The Bible says, considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. Considering ourselves that if I am not spiritually where I should be, I'm not the person to go talk to Howard because I'm going to do more harm than good. But that comes with maturity. That comes with knowing who God wants us to be. Or we might say to ourselves, you know what, Lord, before I go talk to Howard, I got to get my attitude right. I got to be filled with your love and your spirit and your power because that's what's going to save Howard. Because you know, for a lot of us, the only thing that's going to make a difference in our lives when we're drifting away from God is God coming into our lives and touching us and reminding us of who he is and who we are and what we should be. And that's how we hold on. 